0: I'm Nikki, and I'm Kirtana, and you're listening to the chat room. Did you ever do like the saltine challenge? Ew, no. Yeah, me neither. <laughs> <laughs> why would why would anybody do that? It's so gross. Mom, what happened
1: not. when you did the challenge, Nikki?
0: I, I didn't, so I don't know what you're talking about.
1: Mm-hmm. Hypothetically, what would have happened if you had done the salt- Hypothetically,
0: <laughs> I would have killed it and whistled at the end. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I just want you to know this is the reason that I love you.
0: Why? Because I try to shove like nine saltines in my mouth and then Hypothetically.
1: Whistle. Hypothetically. Hypothetically, of course. <laughs> This and the fact that in our episode you said that you love Panic at the Disco.
0: Oh my God. I loved Panic at the Disco so much that I almost got a Panic at the Disco tattoo. And I'm so glad I did not. That would have been really awkward to have on my body for the rest of my life.
1: Oh my gosh. Did <laughs> awesome. I just like front
0: load the information to my mom breaking it to her that I went to this concert?
1: You know that these episodes are confessionals, right?
0: They really are. I mean, it's easier to ask for forgiveness than permission, you know, like seven years after I went to this concert.
1: Exactly. At this point, what's going to happen?
0: I mean, she'll ground me. I'm a grown woman, but I'm sure she'll ground me You'll somehow. be grounded
1: in your apartment in Los Angeles?
0: Yeah, probably. <laughs> and you know what? I'll listen. I won't leave. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm happy she didn't, I'm happy Anisha didn't judge me for my panic at the disco. No,
1: love. no, Anish was on board fully. She loved everything about it.
0: I loved everything about her.
1: Absolutely. She is one of the most engaging and inspiring people ever. So why don't we tell our listeners about her? Oh, God. <laughs> Are we getting worse at this? No, we're getting so much better. Anish Seth is a singer, actress, producer, director, writer and trans activist after receiving her bfa in musical theater from nyu's Tisch school of the arts she booked the broadway national tour of armon's bombay dreams as sweetie problematic show but huge role
0: yeah. In 2008, Anish returned to NYU to pursue a master's degree in social work and dedicated her time throughout the next few years working with lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans, and questioning youth as a counselor with the Trevor Project and a patient advocate at Beth Israel Medical Center.
1: The fact that she has this like whole other life as well outside of the arts is like the most beautiful thing ever. Yeah. Anish went back to the arts and made her TV debut on NBC's Outsourced and has since appeared in Hulu's Difficult People. HBO's High Maintenance, and NBC's New Amsterdam. She had a recurring role as Jillian in the third and final season of Marvel's Jessica Jones for Netflix, and it is killer. It's such a good part.
0: Yeah, she, she really killed that role. Along with her work in theater, film, and television, Anish sits on the board of directors for the Sappho Project, a platform for women, trans, and gender nonconforming musical theater book writers, composers, and lyricists to share their work.
1: You know, the thing that's really amazing about Anish is that you spoke with her in 2019. We talk about this in the interview Mm -hmm. and we kind of scratched the surface with that interview about identity. And I think we're able to really dig into it more in this episode. And what's really amazing is just how much she uses her platform, both on a micro and macro level to promote representation and change
0: yeah i mean and that's the hardest hardest thing to do man i she's so cool
1: oh and to top it all off we found out what her alter ego name would be
0: <laughs> wait what is her alter ego name i forget
1: tune in to find out mine is vicky spoiler alert
0: <laughs> sorry <laughs> I got Starbucks this morning and I'm always super excited to see how they spell my name because I don't even say Nikita, right? Like I say Nikki, like it's like a white name. Yeah. And today I got Vicky. So, hey, I, I was kind of feeling like a Vicky, so I wasn't mad about it. Too. Right.
2: Why not? Be a Vicky.
0: Vicky sounds pretty badass. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> Vicky sounds a little soft
1: these days. <laughs> oh, my God. There, there's an ep- so I'm obsessed with this show, Bob's Burgers, and there's an episode of Bob's Burgers. I love Bob's Burgers. Where Tina decides to take on an alter ego because somebody <laughs> calls her Dina. And so she's like, she's like, I'm Dina today, and she wears this beret and she puts it on the other side of her head, like I'm, it's just. It's I identify so... with that. Wait,
0: and you do you have
1: an alter ego name? Like, this is
0: well, also like, sometimes people have that when they're drunk. Like, my best friend calls herself Shakira when she's drunk. And it's... oh
2: my god, yeah, I have not met my alter. I don't, I, I don't, I don't know if she's got. I mean, she definitely exists. You know, she's in there because I do. She does come out, but I don't, I don't know. I haven't ever thought like, what's her name?
0: Oh, you got to name her. You got to get to know her. I
2: know.
1: Her. You I know. Love her. She's part of you.
2: She's so angry. She's such a bitch. <laughs> (laughs) (laughs)
1: That's so relatable, though. Like, let's be a little angry these days. You know what I mean? Like, like channel it in the right way. You know what I mean? For sure. Exactly. For sure. All right. Well, we'll get started. We'll get started because I actually could talk about this all day, honestly. Me
2: too. Me too.
1: Anish, we're so thrilled that you're joining us today. Nikki interviewed you for a Brown Girl magazine article in 2019, I believe. And we have just been fans of yours since before then, but Especially after it was so eye-opening to hear your co- the conversation that you two had about identity mm-hmm. and what it means not just culturally but in every facet of the word, and yeah. it's just so lovely to be able to chat with you in this setting as well. So we're also say wait
0: for- do this I, everyone who's listening do this when you go home Google my name in Google Images. And Anisha's picture comes up because of that <laughs> article. Like, I'm not even kidding. I was on this panel, and they were like, "Hey, we pulled this bio and headshot for you from Google," and I was like.
1: Isn't that
2: me?
0: I I literally emailed back and I was like, so actually that's a niche. And if you don't know who that is, a lot cooler than me.
1: So please go get to know like, but, do You, do you oh, wanna God. put her on the panel? Cause this is the I know, thing. I'm like happy to switch. Happy to switch.
2: <gasps> oh, you were so funny. And thank you both so much for having me. I'm very, very excited about this chat. I'm just like, this is gonna be I know this is gonna be super fun. So I'm so grateful. Thank you so much for having me here.
1: Thank you. No, so let's just jump right in. I mean, the question we like to ask a lot of our guests, because we do have a lot of listeners who are new to the industry or new to to pursuing their, you know, their dreams and goals of of the arts is really just what drew you to the arts in the first place? And how did you break into the industry for the first time?
2: Yeah, so very, very young, I was about six years old. And I think as a way to kind of slash keep me out of trouble and keep me entertained my parents put me in like the community theater that was happening in the basement of our church you know and it was it was silly and fun and it was i i it wasn't anything to me it was just like a time pass i really enjoyed the people i met and the things that i was doing but i never thought like oh i'm gonna be an actor like as i i knew at four i wanted to be on broadway but still like the concept of being an actor was not there right it was just like Broadway star. And then, you know, growing up as well, my parents were they they don't they're not in the arts, but we saw a lot of theater. We saw a lot of Broadway. We saw we had subscriptions to the New York City Opera when it existed. Nice. R.I.P. Yeah. So we would see like four operas a year, you know, then once I started really loving musical theater, we saw a lot more theater, we would see so many Broadway shows all the time, because also, you know, 20 years ago, it was very accessible compared to mm-hmm. it now. And so it was always a part of my life. And I always studied music. I started studying piano when I was six. I started studying the flute and voice training when I was 11. And then when I was a teenager, I went to the Manhattan School of Music for their pre-college program for as a voice major because I thought I was going to be a classical singer. But I was also doing community theater on the side, which I was enjoying the freedom of what comes with musical theater versus classical music um, so much more. And so when it came down to like deciding what I wanted to do for college, I applied to both musical theater and classical programs and I ended up getting, you know, into NYU's CAP. Program, which is the musical theater program and I was like I don't like that's that's what I want to do I don't want to do like classical voice I want to do musical theater so that's how I got into deciding that was going to be my career path and then I think just you know making the connections and getting all the experience I could it ha- got my foot in the door I can talk about more at length about this later, but I, also I was a sophomore in college when I got the opportunity to workshop Bombay Dreams. And I think that that exposed me to Tara Rubin Casting Agency, that exposed me to the producers, you know, that exposed me to the world of Broadway in a way that I had never been exposed before. And so I, I think just kind of constantly trying to get my foot in the door is how I ultimately ended up slowly but surely climbing this ladder. <laughs>
1: Well that's really interesting too because saying that your parents were into classical music and 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 very much encouraged that experience when you were younger so what was their reaction when you said okay I'm, I got into this musical theater program this is what I want to do
2: yeah I don't think it came to the uh, surprise to them at all sure. I you, you know I I obviously wasn't around for this conversation but I think very early on somebody must have told them look like you can't stifle her like she loves this stuff what she's learning what she's doing like this obviously bringing her joy like if that's what she wants to do you can't take that away from her right yeah. and so I think they they realized they're like yeah you know and like we're here in America, we're, we're here for all of these opportunities, you know, we, we can't put these restrictions on, you know, like, we're here, you have all these opportunities, but you must stick to this career only, you know, I yeah. Think yeah, of our entire, like, huge Indian clan, they tend to be on that side of the, the line, like, very, very liberal, that, you know, I know, they've had conversations like that with other people in our family about like, their children being like, you can't, You can't stifle what their joys are, what they what they want to do, you know, what brings them passion. And you just have to accept that it's a difficult career path, but you can't make it harder by denying them the opportunity to at least try and follow their dream, you know. And so I I felt very supported in that.
1: Yeah, that can be kind of rare because, I mean, it's funny, we've we've had some some other people talk about their less than positive experiences. And, you know, we've had a lot of conversations before about trying to understand both sides of the argument, Mm -hmm. you know, being like to our parents, it's, it's, they want their kids to have the security. They want them to understand, like, it's hard. So do something that, you know, is going to, you know, be able to give you this foundation. But the other side of the argument is exactly what your parents did and said.
2: Right. Right. Right, hundred
1: percent. Also,
0: I mean, like we learned risk taking from them. Like every time my dad was like, "Oh, but like, are you sure you want to do this? Are you sure?" I'm like, "Were you sure you wanted to move here? Like, were you sure you were going to be successful coming to this country? Like, no, but you took the risk because that's what life is about. It's about taking risks so that the next generation has more liberty to take more risks."
2: Right, and I've had this conversation with my my parents too. It's like that this concept right because it's not only that i decided to go into the arts it's also that i'm queer right which is like oh my god particularly in our family you know and it it was this concept of them it's like oh my god how did you skew this family line so hard and i was like but i'm not the only one right like this is a generational thing exactly like you broke your generational curse of staying in india you decided to get on a plane you decided to come to this country and you decided to be able to give yourself more opportunity by being here. So it's like we are all breaking our generational curses in our own ways. And also Mm -hmm. going back to, you know, your point about, like, I think there's like a a sense of security, right? Like the other side of the coin is that parents want their children to be secure and not feel worried about them not having enough or, or not being able to take care of themselves. But also a lot of late Gen Xers, millennials, We are dealing with that because of the economic situation of the world, right? Like no Mm -hmm. matter what, if we were brown, if we were queer, no matter what, our generation is facing this economic crisis where we are not able to economically provide for ourselves in the same way that our parents were able to 40, 50 years ago at our age, you know?
0: Yeah, yeah. I also think it's so funny that nobody consumed TV like immigrants did no one consumed music like immigrants. Oh, yeah. like that's how we learned how to I mean I learned how to speak English by watching Arthur like that's just how we all survived and so it's funny because you never now when my parents watch TV shows they actually pay attention to the names and they're like oh wow like that is a job like now my parents like stay till the end and watch all the credits like when we watch like Moana together as a family and they were like Oh my God! There's like 200 people who worked on this movie. I'm like, yes, and these are all
1: like real jobs that people had. Honestly, that's the best thing. Being in this industry now and being able to talk to my parents about it now is the same thing. They'll stay through the credits. They'll go. What? Sometimes my dad will go, "What is that job?" And I go, "Okay, I'm glad you asked. This is great. This is yeah."
2: It's great. They're
1: like, where's your name? And I'm like, oh, well, yeah, not, <laughs> you're not, not, not there yet. Sorry. Just look away. Yeah. 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 <laughs> right. Exactly. It's one like, day, one day. <laughs> <laughs> well, just, it's just like, oh, you, you missed it. You missed it. Dad. Don't worry about it. It doesn't work. It doesn't right. work. Right. Just, <laughs> but I, I
0: mean, I also, I want to kind of go back a little bit because going back to Bombay Dreams, would love to hear a little bit more about your role as Sweetie in the Broadway national tour of Bombay Dreams. <laughs> huge <laughs> deal. What huge your, deal. Yeah, Yeah, actually, though, and, and, you know, what that also like what that lifestyle was like, I'm super curious as well.
2: Yeah, God, how was that? How did I get involved in that show? So I was a sophomore in college, and I have a friend who lives in Britain. And he was like seeing all these advertisements like, oh, you know, they're casting for this like new Bollywood musical here. You should just like try to reach out and see if they're open to seeing New York actors. And I was like, sure. And I was like still in school. And I will tell you, I did not take an acting class in my life before I got to college. (laughs) So I was a terrible actor. I was a great singer, but terrible actor. Um, Never too late to start, folks. It's never too late to start. It's never too late to start. Um, So. I, I was like, okay, I'll do this, whatever. And Tara Rubin casting was the casting agency here in New York that was handling it. And, you know, a couple weeks after I had like, just sent them, you know, because this was snail mail too you had to send the black and white headshot, your printed dot matrix resume, you know, Mm -hmm send it off by post. Um so like a couple of weeks had gone by and I got a phone call that um, that they wanted to have me come in and just sing some stuff. So I came, went in and I sang like a couple of musical theater songs and then they gave me like a packet and they're like, "Hey, just like look over these three songs." And I was like, "Sure, great." Came back a couple of days later. Um and basically had like a like a mini workshop with them for like a day. Didn't think anything of it. About two weeks later, I get a call. They're like, hey, we want to fly you to London um, to work on this workshop for Sweetie, for this character. Because they they were still developing Sweetie. They didn't know who she was. They're like, yeah, hijras are part of Indian culture. We need to have one in there. So I said, great. You know, like this was so exciting for 19-year-old me. I was like, absolutely. So they flew me out to London. They put me up in a hotel. I was literally in London for like 36 hours for this workshop. I, know, I can't that,
0: believe you were 19 dude i couldn't I even like, convince, like i had to lie to my parents to go to panic at the disco concert half an hour away when i
1: was 19
2: like, <laughs> I, went to I just want <laughs> to point
1: out she said panic at the disco which is i've never loved you more i've never loved you more nikki my mom's gonna listen to this and be like wait you did what <laughs> you
2: did what what are these things i don't know about <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I w- I went to London. It was it was very exciting. I did this workshop and I came back and I waited and I waited and I waited and they were like, yeah, you know, unfortunately, it's not going to go to you. And I was in school. I was like, I didn't I didn't know what I was doing. That's totally fine. About two and a half years later, they called me again. They're like, hey, we're transferring the show to Broadway. Will you come in and sing some of the stuff? And I was like, sure. Mm-hmm. So I went in and I sang. It was like an initial call, and then I, I waited about a few more days, and they're like, "Yeah, we want you to do this workshop." And it was me and a couple of other folks, and we were there for like about a week, and we were doing like scene work and you know dances, and we were singing the songs and stuff like that. Um, and then ultimately, I didn't get it, and I it was it was a little disappointment because the the feedback I was getting continually through the process was that I was a little too authentic to play Sweetie. And th- that Stop word wasn't, insp- yes, what? that, yeah. So it's, it's a very, it's, it's a very uh, interesting point in my career because it, it did so much for my career and also for myself worth being able to play a principal for a year in this show, you know, and also playing someone who was very, very true to me when I finally got to do it on tour. But, you know, the, the language that was used was we want to hire somebody who the audience can clock as a man in a wig and a dress because this character is meant to be the comedic relief, right? The hijra is the comedic relief, right? Not to mention the way, I don't know if you've all seen Bombay Dreams, but like the way Sweetie dies at the end, right? Like Sweetie is beaten to death. And then while she's trying to crawl away, she gets shot in the back. Like... And they say later on, like, she died like a dog on the beach. So it's, like, very problematic show, right? I mean, like, that's just, like, a seedling of how problematic that show was. But it did so much wonders for the South Asian community, right? Like, it was the first show of its kind to be on Broadway like that. It gave so Mm -hmm. many brown actors so many opportunities. But the discourse and the language and the experience around actually producing that show was incredibly just incredibly problematic, you know? And I've addressed it with that casting company since, you know, I don't well, know if y'all- oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, but, but that's, yes. but that's
1: like, the thing. It's like when these things happen, it sucks and it shouldn't. And right. it's nice to hear when someone is using their voice and their platform to say, "You do y'all not realize that this sucks and it's not awesome? Like, do you right. not get why this is bad? You know?
2: Yeah. And I don't know if there's like a, a, like a a conscious shift in the industry where people are feeling more. I I, like, I I see that, right. Like people are feeling more empowered to speak out about these kinds of abuses that are happening in the industry. But there's the other part of it for me is that like, I don't like some people are like, well, you're risking ever being called in again by the casting agency by speaking Mm. up like this. And it's like, I don't care. Like I, if these, if, If a casting agency or anybody, an institution, a producer, director, whatever, if folks cannot see where they need to be held accountable in their mistakes and accept that and learn and grow from it to make a more inclusive space for people, then I don't want to be part of that either. You know, it's not. That's
1: exactly right. That's exactly right. It shouldn't be that you're risking anything. It should be that they're risking ridicule and being canceled because sometimes cancel culture <laughs> does work you know what I mean right. But like, it, it, it yeah, should yeah. be it should the onus is on them to realize right. this person is calling me out because I'm doing something problematic I'm not going to yeah. punish that person for calling me out on my bad behavior I need to change yeah. my bad behavior and it is so hard to get someone to change to something because they're immediately going to get defensive you know and yes, that, absolutely and that's 100% the problem it's also it also really it is unfortunate that uh, you know, first of all, it's amazing that you were on a Broadway national tour. That That is a huge <laughs> achievement. You. It is. It's Thank a you. huge achievement. Um, but it is problematic that our first big South Asian show is a right. show that was problematic. It's almost like you're going one step forward and two steps back a little
2: bit. Right? It does feel that way. It's like, yes, we got this thing. But oh my God, how much is this contributing negatively against the kind of representation that we are actually really seeking here, you know? Yeah,
1: yeah one of the things that we do also want to talk about is that you were able to transition from stage to, to film and, and TV as well. Yeah. And, you know, that's not necessarily the easiest thing to do. So can we, can you talk a little bit about that transition from, you know, going to your first TV role, or your first film role? Um, and especially, you know, we're so curious what the experience was like working with Marvel TV for Jessica Jones, especially considering how, like female empowered and and badass that character is in that show was. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Bombay Dreams gave me a lot, right? As problematic as it was, it gave me a lot. And in 2000, I had left the industry in 2008 to begin my transition because the industry was not inclusive for trans people at all. There was like very, 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 very few roles that were actually written for trans people. And then they were usually given to men. So I left the business, I got a social work degree. um, And then in like early 2011, I got a call from NBC casting that was like, hey, you were recommended to us by, and there was a couple of people from Bombay Dreams that like were specifically looking for a trans Indian actress for outs- this ep- two episodes of Outsource. Um, and you were recommended, would you mind just like putting yourself on tape for these scenes? And I was like, yeah, sure. And it was really, really silly. And I sent into the tape and I, 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 di- I wasn't expecting to hear anything considering how my experience with Bombay Dreams had gone. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was very pleased to hear that like they wanted wanted me to come down to LA and shoot. And so I went down there and I shot these like f- really bit part on the last two episodes of, um, uh, outsource. And it kind of shifted my focus for me. Cause I was like, Oh, I don't have to give up acting, right? Like there's, there's yeah. room here for me to make for the kind of person that I am, right? Like for being a trans South Asian actress, like I can use this and I can try to stretch it as much as I can. And, yeah. um, so I kind of like threw myself back into, to theater, um, and I was doing a lot of regional work because I was married at the time and he was in the military. So we were living in like Monterey and then we were living in Texas and then we were living in Tacoma. So it's like I was trying to do like all these regional gigs as much as I could. Um, and then when I came back to New York eventually and I was doing all this theater, I got the call to come audition for Difficult People, which my friend Shakina Nafak is on. Um, mm-hmm. And they they had seen me for Lola, the role that she got. Um, like a few years before I'd been called in for that. So I think they also kind of knew me and she had recommended me for this episode to guest star in with her um, and a couple other folks. And so I booked that and it was kind of like, okay, now I'm getting, you know, like one, two feet into the door. And -hmm. then shortly after that, I booked um, high maintenance and then um, I booked a kid like Jake. And it was just like all these small bit roles that I was getting and I was just grateful for the experience of being on a set because I'd never really been on a set. You know, right. outsource was very overwhelming because it was my first time. It was also yeah. my first foray back into the business after a little hiatus. So I was trying to soak up all the knowledge that I could. And then I got the opportunity to audition for Jessica Jones and booked that. And that was just that was a life-changing experience for me in so many ways because one, it was the consistency of having a job for six months, which, which an actor rarely gets, you know? Yep. I My character only shot within the offices of Alias, so we were on a soundstage, so I got to settle into a dressing room for six months and create a space that felt very homey. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, you know like being welcomed like even though it was the third season and i was a new character i was welcomed into the family like and that that show was a family with open arms on day one and particularly you know melissa rosenberg is the show runner very female led very female empowered i it was really wonderful because she would constantly engage with me throughout the season about where she thought she wanted Jillian to go how mm-hmm, you know yeah. she would go through scenarios and be like should we write this for her can we write this for her like what do you feel about this and being able to have that kind of feedback in the development of a character was something I'd never experienced before. You know, you certainly don't you rarely get to experience that in theater unless you're working on new work um, and yeah. in television, unless you are some sort of person that keeps coming back.
1: Well, especially on a show that has a lot of characters and oh. is in, you know, its third season.
2: And, you know, by then we, there were rumors were already spreading that, you know, Marvel was bought by Disney and that this show may not last because all the other ones were getting canceled. But it was just, it was really wonderful to be engaged that way, especially as a queer artist, as a queer brown woman, because I've never had that experience before, right? Like people mostly are like, no, no, you're lucky to be here, stand there, show up and do your lines. So that was, that was very, very life-changing. And of course, then to be part of the the Marvel universe, like (laughs) that's just insane to me you know and
1: you know in (laughs) my opinion the best out of the marvel netflix tv shows you know what i mean like i yeah oh i I mean there's no no i feel like there's no comparison
2: it was so good and it was such like it was such a joy to work on it's funny because i go back or like people go back and they'll watch it and they'll see the evolution of jillian's relationship with jessica on the show and it very much mimics my relationship with Kristen in real life like you know in the beginning we're just like hi we don't really know each other yeah. Do you really want me here? And then like mid season, it was like we were hanging out during lunch and like gossiping and you know uh, love got, that. got got very close by the end, just like Jillian and her do. So yeah.
1: I love that so much. The thing that we we just we just love about you is is how open and and honest and vulnerable you are talking about identity. It's such an mm-hmm. it's such an important topic always, but especially right now. The interview you did with Nikki it, it really touched a really important topic, kind of on the surface. And so, one of the things that I was really excited about when you agreed to talk to us was really kind of getting further into it. You know, we've talked we've talked a little bit about what your struggle for authenticity was when it came to being stereotyped or tokenized, because or rather that you are you're too authentic. I'm like, what kind of feedback is that? Too authentic? Too authentic? Like- the <laughs> dumbest thing I've ever heard, but. You know, one of the things you said in the article was that, you know, you were stereotyped or tokenized because you were trans rather than South Asian, which mm-hmm. it, what's unfortunate is it's a kind of a double whammy because as South as South Asians that happens too. How has that stigma started to break if at all? And how did you talk to your team about what your action points would be to try and combat it? Yeah.
2: That's a great question. I think <sighs> You know, I think it's a little bit of both. I think that the stigma is still there, right? It's still very much there. People still sometimes only call me in when there's a trans role or only call me in when there's specifically a South Asian trans role. And I'm like, then you're never going to call me (laughs) because nobody's writing those roles. But I think it's also I, I feel very lucky because a lot of the roles that I have gotten to play, specifically in theater not you know all the roles that I've played on television have been trans but specifically in theater I've gotten the opportunity to play roles that have traditionally been cast by cis women and so I think having that opportunity to do that has really allowed me to show that trans not not just me but that like yes the trans community and not to say that like this is on my shoulders but it's This is how the world works, right? Like whenever a marginalized person starts to get work, it's like somehow representative of a a whole community. But that we are capable of doing so much more than folks want to pigeonhole Mm -hmm. us into. Um, You know, it's like, oh, actually... Yeah, anish can sing she's not just trying to be famous because she's trans it's like no 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 right you know like we're we've been doing these jobs like some of us uh, you know have been in this industry for 20 plus years and have been doing the work and it's only now we're getting the kind of visibility we are because people are opening their minds up to these kinds of different narratives to these kind of different stories and this this different type of representation and, you know, there's there's like this attitude about it that like we don't know as much or we're not as experienced as much when the reality is actually not that, you know, it's just that we have the experience, we've done the things, just people don't pay attention in the same ways mm-hmm. because they're not interested in, that, in seeing that. Represent. It doesn't mean anything to them right now. You know, it's and specifically it's not marketable, right? When it becomes right. marketable, that's when the mm-hmm. interest will start to come up. It's, oh, that's it's, such a
0: demeaning way to categorize identity is whether or not it's marketable because right. people also thought no one was gonna watch crazy rich asians and it they like broke the box office so right
2: <laughs> right and, exactly. and, now,
0: and now
1: you hear yeah and then you hear stories about people being like oh well now we know like asian people will watch something so maybe we can start putting asian people in leads
2: right right <laughs> it's just it's like you know and like the, the kind of the classist attitudes around it like I remember seeing this meme that was going around when Parasite was winning all these awards, right? And people were like, oh, are they even SAG? And it's like the classist attitudes of of like anything that is a minority show, right? Like anything that's a minority production is somehow just not as good, could not live up to the same standards yeah. that a lot of white me- mediocrity is. You know what I mean? It's just, it's, it's really upsetting that that's how the business has to run and that we're all trying to break that cycle.
1: Exactly. Did you have any conversations like with reps or with just like people oh, on, yeah. on your team about about what those action items would be, like what, your, what you wanted to do versus what you felt like the responsibility was on their end or, or anything like that? Yeah,
2: yeah. I, I will say it has taken me a long time, um, I guess like six years now, really since I've been professionally repped in New York again, Yeah. Uh, you know, to really find a team that, understands who I am as a person not just as an artist but as a person and the kind of work that I want to do and also has my best interest at heart as well as theirs right Mm -hmm. like because agencies obviously have their interests at heart but knowing that they have my best interest as well, that they're not going to be like, well, why, you know, scold me for not wanting to take an audition or a show or, you know, not generating as much work as they might hope because it doesn't speak to what I really want to do. And it's taken me a long time and and many, many reps to to go through to really kind of get there. So I'm very, very thankful that I have the folks that I do, um, Eddie Rabin at Take Three and and Jody Schoenberg-Carter at 1022. I'm able to engage in conversation with them regularly. We do that yeah. regularly. You know, we talk multiple, multiple times a month about just like, oh, and, and of course, anytime projects come up about like, no, this this is what I want to do. This is not speaking to me. Um, I don't want to be doing this. I do want to be doing this. You know, recently we had a conversation about an Indian character that came across the desk, but wasn't trans identified but south asian identified and they wanted to have an accent and i was like i i'm kind of beyond that in point in my career where i need to do an accent to get a role i don't really want to play those roles anymore now that i know that i don't have to um and you know we passed on it because they they really wanted somebody who was going to do an accent And i was like well that's just not me you know and i think um having a team that really understands that and is okay with that and is accepting of the voice that you have. And I think also they've realized that like, you can't shut me up. (laughs) Like I'm very loud. I'm, I speak my mind that like, even like, what are they going to say? Shut up. Like they would never, but I think they also (laughs) realize that my voice is important in the conversation enough that they need to, to back that up, to support that. And I feel very, very lucky with that about that. Well,
1: that's a hard thing to do too, to, to feel like you can, speak about anything. Even to people that are supposed to be, like I said, on your team or or supposed to be in your corner, it's not easy to be like, please understand that the the accent can be demeaning. If it doesn't pertain to the role and there's a backstory for why this person has an accent, if it's not organic to the script or the character, then I don't want to do it. That's not an easy thing to figure out.
2: Right. And I think that particularly actors i don't i don't know what it's like in any other kind of you know hyphen it but particularly actors we are fed this narrative from the beginning from from getting into this industry even in school that you are to be grateful for the space that you are given you right. are not to challenge anything about it, you know you're just supposed to shut up and accept what you're, you're given and I think, like going back to that conversation about risk we had earlier it's like a lot of people feel like it's risking their livelihoods, their jobs if they speak up about these things, but it's so important too because yeah. that's how we facilitate change right like that's mm-hmm. calling people out on this stuff, having these conversations is how we're going to start facilitating change and It sucks that the sacrifice sometimes is we don't book the job, but I would much you know, like I said before, I would much rather facilitate the change than book the job where I'm not going to be happy because of the way that things are functioning there.
1: Absolutely. Amen. That's such a
0: great segue into the next question, which is, you know, how do you think times are changing when it comes to how we see both ethnicity stereotyping and like LGBTQI plus tokenism in theater and TV and film from when you started in the industry to now because it's hard, right? It's hard to say no, especially as an actor when these things come up. And when you're saying like, I'd I'd rather choose the cause over booking the job, like that's such a powerful statement, but I'm sure it took a lot for you to get okay with feeling that way.
2: Yeah, it took it for sure. For sure. I had to do a lot of my own healing and realize that my voice was actually worth it, right? Because for so many years, Like I said, you get fed that narrative where you don't think your voice even matters, right? That you're just another body, another voice in the room, and that your own personal voice and values don't even matter. And so it was like that little toes in the water, like how much can I say without feeling like I'm putting myself in jeopardy? And it just, you keep stretching that you keep stretching that. And then you, you get to, and also probably age is a factor. You get to a point where you're like, I just don't care anymore. You know, I just, how can I care about that? petty thing when there's so much more to be concerned about when there's so much more like, okay, I didn't book this show. Great. You know what means more to me that the next time I am in a room, I am making it more accessible for people who come after me, making sure that that space is created that. I mean, that's, what's more important to me. Right. And I think that, I think that big, institutions and companies are realizing this slowly that like people are having this kind of notion that yes like in indeed there are a lot of us who will sacrifice the jobs in order to make this change happen and you're not going to end up with the folks that you may want because we are doing other things you know we've moved on to places that feel a little more equitable for us
1: yeah from what i've read and what i've seen on social media it does seem to me that a lot of trouble is in theater. Mm -hmm. Even this New York times article I read a little while back where they were talking about people coming back from COVID back to theater and how, you know, some actors have gained weight. Like, and that was part of the part of the article (sighs) as a challenge. I know. (laughs) It's like, it it seems to me and and correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems to be that theater is the hardest hill to climb for
2: sure absolutely i think the theater is way behind um i think theater is way behind in terms of trans inclusion i think theater is way behind in south asian inclusion and it's there's just no justification for it there's no excuse for it you know particularly now in 2020 halfway through 2021 going into 2022 what excuse is there that our stages do not look like the world we live in yeah yeah and I, I think not that TV and film is not problematic, but there is a lot more freedom in the creation of characters and mm-hmm. the ability to be diverse in television versus theater. And I think I I, I don't know if that's because of like the economic control is yeah. shifting in Film and television and not so much in theater, like in theater, the spaces are pretty much owned and dominated by cis white men, you know, and I think that the power is changing in film and television more. you're seeing a lot of queer folk, a lot of South Asian folk, um, a lot of people of color who have the reins of their own projects Mm -hmm. and the ability to really do what they want to do and say what they want to do and get that greenlit and get that funded. And you, you don't see that change happening that way in the theater.
1: You know, when people think of Broadway or theater, I'm sure a lot of people think, oh, well, it's New York, it's, it's liberal. And so right. people assume that that would be where there's the most progress. But what you said is key. It's that all of these productions are usually produced by the same companies and they're all mm-hmm. run by cis white men.
2: Yep, yep. And until we shift that power, until they're willing to sacrifice that power, which they're not or even share that power, which they're not, nothing is going to change. Mm-hmm. Because even if they allow their doors open to be more diverse, it's still under the control of cis white heteronormativity. Mm-hmm. And the, the limits of that are, are only so much. Because then they're worried about patrons. They're worried about keeping the building open. You know, they're so worried about that, particularly right now, because theater is in a crisis, Mm -hmm. like the economic impact of challenging their white, rich audiences. Yep. Yeah. Somebody's got to say.
1: (laughs) Yes. And this is why I was saying earlier, let that angry alter ego out. Yeah.
2: Oh, yeah. (laughs) The alter ego. She's coming out. We might name her yet. (laughs) We haven't named her yet. Yeah, I was
0: just going to say, do you think, do you have any ideas about what to name her?
2: God, I...
0: I want to, like, look up different words for, like, dragon.
2: Yeah, yes. yeah.
0: You know, yeah. like, she's feeling, She's. I'm getting, like, dragon energy from your alter ego right now. We
1: should just name so, her Daenerys, then.
2: There it is. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Well, someone called me Maleficent the other day, and I was like, oh, I like that. I like I that I love one.
1: that. That's awesome. You get Maleficent, and I'm just Vicky. <laughs>
2: That's so great. That's so great. <laughs> oh, man.
1: Well, and that's that's another thing that we also just wanted to talk to you about and that we love about you is the way that you take a stand for things, the way you use your platform for activism. Can you talk a little bit about that activism, especially with like the Sappho Project? And, you know, you, you've you worked with a lot of different wonderful organizations.
2: Yeah, particularly the Sappho Project is great. Um, the Sappho Project basically uplifts and supports women and trans and gender non-conforming artists, musical theater writers, composers, lyricists, provides them with resources, provides them with a platform for their work. And they're a very, very new organization. They just started this year. Um, so I'm on the board of directors there. Um, and the work that they they do is is really, really wonderful. I, I think that there's very few, if, if any, organizations that are really uplifting folks work the same way that they are. Um, And then I also, you know, I was involved with the Trevor Project for a very, very long time. I started as a call center counselor there. And ultimately, I was like in the programming department. And then I was associate manager of the call center down in New York before I left while I was pursuing my social work degree. And, you know, in while I was doing my social work degree, though, I mostly worked with substance abuse users and queer populations, which was really wonderful and life changing for me as well. Having that experience has always made me feel like I'm an empathetic person and it needs to somehow be a part of my work, right? Like it couldn't be separate. And I think through just different gigs and being asked to speak on things, it became very natural and comfortable for me to be able to have these conversations. And then I realized the importance of actually being able to have these conversations and it just kind of evolved into the activism that is part of my work today.
1: Yeah, absolutely. How was the COVID shutdown for you? Especially as like conversations started happening about un- underrepresented people and talent, uh, how did yeah. you kind of maneuver those months? Not just as an actor, but like as a person. Like, did you feel like you had to lean more heavily into like your social activism? How did you kind of channel your artistic energy, and then how did you deal with it as as these conversations started happening?
2: Yeah, well, the first few months was just crying. Yeah. <laughs> it was just lots of Aww. laying laying in bed and crying, and I think I was I was pretty bedridden for a while and I was not inspired. And and then I noticed, you know, in like April, kind of mid to end of April, some of my friends started doing stuff and one of my best friends, he was being part of like a, an online cabaret. And I was like, this is going to be really interesting to watch. I'll just tune in to support him. And then I noticed a lot more people were doing these kind of virtual mm-hmm. projects. And I, I can tell you, like 19 months ago, I had no idea what Zoom even was. Right, um, right. I So I, I would watch. And then I started to get inspired on my own. And I produced two Shakespeare readings. Like mm. one was a mini workshop. One was just kind of a table read. And then I was also part of like... 10 or 11 virtual workshops online so that that kept me busy and it was just it was a trudging through right it was mm-hmm. like uh okay i'm gonna get myself up today i have to figure out a routine for myself within the walls of my my home and yeah just try to stay as active as i can as i can handle because i also need to respect and recognize when i need to rest and recover yeah, yeah. um and so i think it was it was learning the balance of that right and i think like particularly now compared to where i was a year ago is very very different because now i'm like okay this has become routine for all of us right Mm -hmm. like doing this kind of thing is very routine working from home is very routine doing these online plays is very routine that it just kind of feels like the new normal which you know isn't great but it's it's what particularly as actors right and i think because of the experience of like having a great job to being unemployed for a while you you learn the skills of how to make sure that you're taking care of yourself Mm -hmm. and i think that that helped me of course it didn't prepare me for for this but i think it helped me kind of dissect that for myself like what do i really need in this moment and i think also working on myself like i would go to therapy twice a week you know for a while during this thing and i think like really working on myself really helped too. Cause it was like, I was learning, I had the the space and the time to really think about what are the things that were meaningful to me? What were the things that were going to really empower me? What were the things that were really yeah. going to be a hindrance to my own growth and having that own evolution for myself really helped as well. Oh,
0: I love that. Do you feel like, cause I obviously I want to, we want to ask you the advice you have for actors, brown, LGBTI, both, really anybody trying to break into the industry, do you feel like unpacking that identity and taking the time to really figure out what's important to you and what you want to do with your art is important before you try to break into the industry?
2: No, I'm going to say no, because I don't think that if you are a marginalized actor in any way, that you should feel the responsibility of having to speak on diversity, right? To yeah. speak on inclusion, yeah. to to ha- to be an activist at all. Like, it is totally yeah. okay if you're like, I just want to be an actor. I just want to be a singer, and I want to do my job, and I want to go home, and I don't want to get involved in these conversations. Like, that is totally 100% Honestly, okay.
1: that's kind of activism in its own way, if you think about it. Yeah. Because you're, sh- it is. you're just doing your job and you're, you're killing doing it. You're
2: your job. Right. Exactly. Right? That speaks on its own as well. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I, that, you know, that, to set that up, up, right, like if you just want to do that, like there's there's no shame, there's no problem. Like, go full force, full blessing of everybody. Um, but if you do choose to have that kind of stance, I wouldn't say that it's a requirement going in, but I would say definitely prepare yourself for those conversations because I think if you are tuning your brain to be aware of those things when you go into a rehearsal room rather than tell yourself that I don't I don't want to have to worry about that or deal with that. Yeah. I think like you have to prepare yourself differently. You have because you are going to be engaging in a very very different way, right? And I think like particularly for me when I'm in rooms now, I am always waiting for the other shoe to drop. Like I guess that's that's where Maleficent is, right? She's like in the background putting on her boxing gloves. She's <laughs> no. like I'm ready. You tell me whenever you need me to come out and say some shit. <laughs> so I think, you know, but that like that's me, right? Like that is the 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 human that I've become, right? Like that, she's always ready to be there to stand up in case she needs to, and yeah. and say something. And not everybody is going to feel that way. Not everyone's going to feel as empowered as I feel in this moment. You know, it's and it it, it it always ebbs and flows. You may have that empowerment in 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 one room and feel completely disempowered in another. I, I wouldn't say it's a requirement to anyone thinking about going into this industry, but it's it's certainly something you should prepare yourself for because you may even be forced into that conversation and you may not yeah, want
0: to
1: have it. That's a good point. That's
0: so true. But Anish, thank you so much for talking to us. You know, taking it back to that first interview I did with you, which that was like super, super early in in my evolution in in the industry. And I was an assistant at the time and I remember it completely changed the way I looked at roles and looked at identity myself. So like, you know, I, I appreciate you a lot and I appreciate your candor and, and I hope that people listen to this and, and feel the same way that I did after hearing you speak on, on what it's like to be in this industry and, 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 you know, own who you are and not pigeonhole yourself
1: and stand up for yourself.
2: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you both. I really enjoyed my time here today. This was super fun. It went by so fast.
1: (laughs) I don't want to stop talking.
0: (laughs) I know. Wait, wait, Kier Did we name, do you have an alter ego name?
1: No, I'm just annoying and loud and angry all the time. So (laughs) true, that's So true. Um...
0: The chat room is hosted by me, Nikki Menon, and me, Kirtana Sastri, in partnership with Brown Girl Magazine. Balavi Sastri is our consulting producer. All podcast artwork is created by Ashraya Sukesh, and opening music is by Sridhar
1: Bhamripati. Special thanks to Trisha Sukhuja Walia. Please subscribe to the chat room on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening right now. Thanks for tuning in.